Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Ned Johnson. He is one of the most sought-after SAT and test prep tutors in the country. He's the founder of Prep Matters, the huge test prep company from the Washington, D.C. area. He is the author of Conquering the SAT, How Parents Can Help Teens Overcome the Pressure and Succeed. And he's also the author of the book, The Self-Driven Child, which we spoke about with him on the podcast a couple years ago now. Really excited to bring Ned on the show today and talk specifically about preparing for the big tests, the SAT and the ACT, what we can do as parents to help our kids prepare and how we can think about the test in a better way, how we can help our kids develop a better attitude on the test, how we can communicate about difficult topics surrounding test prep, and ultimately how to make sure your teen has the confidence and the self-image that will allow them to succeed on the exam. All that and more is coming up on today's show. Ned, thanks a lot for hanging out with us today. Okay, so you literally wrote the book on the SAT and specifically for parents on how to help your teenagers survive the SAT, but it's been a few years since this book came out, so I'm really curious what has changed about the SAT and about the world of test prep since you first published this book. Yeah, so, you know, the the SAT has gone through a number of iterations. In 2005, there was a new test where they added a writing section to the test and went from a 1600 scale to a 2400 scale. And then they had another new test in 2016 where they got rid of that. And so they went back to a 1600 scale, got rid of the separate writing score. The big takeaway is that they have really excised vocabulary from the SAT, which used to be such a big part of the test and made the SAT in many ways a lot more like the ACT is. Um, And that's on purpose because, you know, about 10 years ago, the ACT overtook the SAT. More kids nationwide were taking the ACT than the SAT, partly because school systems in wanting to have a high school exit exam, you know, really, you know, no child left behind stuff, um, started trying to do this. And ACT and college boards swept in and said, no, 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 well, d- don't make your own test. You guys are educators. Use ours. Let us sh- explain to you how our test really gets at and, and, and measures the things that you care about. Um, and ACT was more well positioned in that conversation uh, than the SAT was because the ACT had always claimed that it was going to be an achievement test, an assessment test of what kids have learned, where the SAT, so much of its history was steeped in, you know, kind of an IQ test of being a um, 
an aptitude test, which didn't work as well. So we saw you in Paul Tuff's book. We had him on the show to talk about his book last year now, I guess. Yeah, I love him. He's great. He is wonderful. You're like a you're like a huge character in his book, which was really fun to see. I was he could have, you know, he could have told that story differently if he'd chosen to. So I, you know, <laughs> usually rarely does a test prep guy end up being anything other than a cardboard cutout of a villain and get a little mustache and toilet. Um, so yeah, I was really, I was really grateful. Um it was fun. I mean, I um I mean, I, you know, there are a couple other points I would, of course, snuck in there, but it's his narrative to tell. <laughs> but I like I like how seriously he takes the role of anxiety in the way that I think that I do with the work that, yeah. that, that with, with kids. Um, and for me, I mean, I did a podcast with, and I didn't quite land the plane the way that I wanted to, but um, because in how children succeed, he talks so eloquently about ACEs, you know, ACE scores and the work of Nadine Burke Harris and, and childhood stressors um, and the effects on developing brains. And then I think in the years that matter most really gets at pressures and stresses on kids going through both the application process, but even more so getting through college, particularly for, for, for marginalized kids, particularly for under-resourced kids. Um, so I just, I mean, I, I loved it. I was really glad that he uh, threw me into that plot the way that he did. Yeah. You're kind of like an example of what is wrong with um, the SAT process in a lot of ways, but also your stories through the book do show some of these things like just how important things that don't have anything to do with how much knowledge you have can really affect your score. Like uh, anxiety is just a huge one and confidence and some of these other variables that tend to favor people who can uh, afford to spend a lot of time practicing and getting better at these. Yeah. Yeah. It's fair. It's fair. You know, and of course the the interesting thing is, you know, standardized tests are what allow me to, you know, be overly compensated to work with, um, to work with kids. Um, but, you know, some of the more enjoyable feedback and notes of thanks and that kind of thing that I get from kids are they're putting two and two together and realizing that the things that I've talked about that have proven significant in helping them do their best work or perform their best on standardized tests apply to a whole lot more <laughs> than this stupid test, totally. you know, applies to learning. I have a, a guy I worked with years ago, who's um, one of the most brilliant, just an incredible mind, brilliant kids I've ever worked with. He was a, a football player at a local high school. And at some point in the summer football camp, went to this, this kind of not so great local college for their, you know, because the facilities were there. And the coach sidles up to him. He's like, you know, Paul, uh, you know, looking at choices for college. We might not be your first choice, but wonder if you're kind of, you know, interested in us. And 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 if you got your sheet, you know, it's like recruiting sheet. And so Paul hands <laughs> him the sheet, and it's his name, and his GPA 4.0 unweighted. His SAT reading score 800. His SAT math 800. The writing 800. The chemistry 800. The math level two 800. And the coach is just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> And just walks away. Right. And so I had such a fun time working with this guy and he did beautifully, blah, blah, blah. But um, I wrote a blog um, right before the holidays about gratitude. And he actually read it, which kind of stunned me because he's 35 now. And we and he sent me this just beautiful email about all the things that I talked about that helped him do, you know, helped him you know, do his best work. And of course, mm -hmm. he did such a great job. Um, 
of how many of these things he applied to his time at university and now that he's a business person and da da da. And I thought, well, yeah, because you know, ultimately this is about how brains work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and conquering your own insecurities and fears and habits that are getting in the way of you not being able to mm-hmm. get the score that you want to get. Mm-hmm. And it's particularly, you know, to your, to your point, and it's particularly pernicious in that things like the ACT now, they have these benchmarks where they talk about whether you're college ready or not. And yeah. one of the real challenges is that under-resourced, marginalized kids who score below that, those benchmarks are, are often jumping to the, to taking the message that we're not college material. Mm. And so they don't persist. Not understanding yet that <laughs> there are a lot of false negatives on standardized tests. There are very few false positives. You don't get a 99th percentile score right. if you've got a 72nd IQ. It's just, you know, that's that, that's a hard gap to close. Yeah, yeah. But there are people who have a 72nd IQ, you know, or ability or learn skills in school who perform at the 40th level that has very little to do with, with how they can think, but, but more with how they do think on the given day. And so that's the work that, you know, all teachers are doing. I'll throw myself in the mix as an AirSat teacher. When you can help folks kind of understand that and reframe and have, to your point, better habits and practice differently and blah, 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 blah. You do because you, you hate to see talent go undeveloped, right? Yeah, and, right? and it's just, you know, and of course, it's kids with fewer resources. You, you know, talent is widely distributed, but, but opportunity isn't. Um, so, yeah, I hear you. It's one thing that really strikes me reading your book, though, was how much, you know, we can talk all day about how this test is stupid and it doesn't really measure this and it doesn't measure that or it does this or whatever. But um, at the end of the day, there is something, whether if it's not the SAT, it's something else. But we, we need to have these things that are, you know, throughout your life, you're always going to have the huge presentation and you have to be on on that day and you have to learn how to prepare for it properly. You're going to have tests of all different kinds throughout the course of your life. Like, um, that we can mm-hmm. look at this as a good thing, whether whatever score you get on it, we can view this as a positive thing because it's something that we can help you prepare for. We can look at your habits. We can dissect your preparation and we can talk about, hey, why did we not perform so well this on this particular time taking it? What could we do differently next time? And if yeah, we yeah, see yeah. this experience as something that we can learn from, then it's a win-win kind of no matter what. Yeah, no, I think it's an excellent point. You know, sort of three things jump to mind. One, <laughs> in uh, the D.C. area where I live, several years ago, they removed parallel parking as part of the driver's test. Okay. And kids exulted. Parents like, oh, thank goodness. Yes, and I thought, right. I thought this is the worst idea ever. Yeah. Because taking the driver's test. the bar. Take, well, well and, 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 and in addition to lowering the bar, because I mean, a lot of people say that, oh, we're dumbing down college and da-da, for, from uh, what I would build on your point about, you know, you're going to have stressful situations. And mm. the challenge is at a neurological level, the dominant manifestation of anxiety is avoidance. Yeah. And so we avoid things that make us anxious. And I'll come back and talk about tests in a moment. And that's a problem because the more you avoid things, short-term it feels better, but long-term it makes us more anxious. And the way that we 
why your brains, and this is of course the, the, the book in, in, the, in our book, The Self-Driven Child, the way that people develop the you know, coping skills and resilience, the ability to handle difficult situations is handling difficult situations, not throw them in the deep in the pool and have them you know, risk feeling like they're drowning, but have things that, are, that, that are, are manageable stressors and then they recover from. So you go and take your driver's test and parallel parking is scary. It's, you know, oh my gosh, yeah, I just right. Code. Oh, right. And what happens out. if you fail the test? You're upset. You're irritated, but nobody loses a job. Nobody loses a finger. You know, no, you just, you lose nothing but a bit of pride yeah, because you right. would want to have the experience of being able to park a car parallel park a car when it's a little stressful, because guess what? The first time when you park this for real, you know, on the streets of Bethesda, Maryland, you're not going over an orange traffic cone. You're backing into some <laughs> yeah. expensive car. And if you right. hit it, that's even going to be more of a thing. So there's a wonderful book called Make It Stick, and it's Henry Rodiger. And he talks about what he describes, the, they coined the term the testing effect. Mm. And it shows that the experience of being repeatedly tested actually deepens knowledge. You know, the idea of neurons that fire together, wire together. And the, the experience of, of putting yourself in mildly stressful situations, again, you, you deal with that and you recover and you deal and yeah, recover. Yeah. Um, because if we, if we create school in ways that kids never have things that are stressful, it's, it's really kind of poor preparation for real, real life. Totally, now, we're not really getting them ready. Yeah, I mean, that having been said, you know, when you look at, you know, there are other countries where everything, your whole path to college is about this test. And if, if you do it, then you can to go to the best universities in Shanghai. I'm just making this up. And if you don't, you all these opportunities disappear. Right. And so I get that with standardized tests. But the reality is that the vast, I mean, there are what well, this is uh, um, Jeff Salomlingo's book. There are 41 colleges and universities in the, in the country that have admission rates under 20%. The vast, 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 vast majority really aren't highly selective. You know, more than half the kids can get in there. So it's not, you know, Yale or McDonald's, <laughs> you know, if it's not Yale, it's a half step down and then a half step down and a half step down. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, people may desperately want to go to Yale or some other fantastic place, but it's simply not the case that you have to go there to have a successful life and that you can't go to a thousand other universities and have a first-rate education, even if it's at a college that people haven't heard about before. Now, I'm, of course, speaking against test prep, and I maybe have to find a different job eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the important thing with standardized tests and, and tests in school generally is that they're balanced in how they're used, and they're not given more value than they need or deserve. Mm. But we also don't you know, remove all impediments um, to stress for kids because that doesn't prepare them well for real life. And I, and I say that understanding full well, that depending on the resources in your family, depending on the ACE course in your family, depending on who you are, the, the, the problem with standardized tests is they're not really standardized because we think they're an objective measure of what's a highly subjective experience. And of course, that's Paul Tufts. You know, book of you know, you and I could go on the thing, and you think, dude, this is awesome. I love this kind of thing, and I could be totally. really scared, even though we both, you know, can can kind of do the same stuff in math, and we may get really different scores. I can argue both ways of the stupid test. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Okay, but so you have talked uh, a little earlier about how there's been some changes even since you wrote this book. And mm -hmm. one of them you mentioned was vocabulary right. used to be much more kind of emphasized. And even in here, in the section about the reading, uh, the critical reading section of the test, you talk a lot about vocabulary, words, and how mm -hmm. words are used in sentences. So what has changed about uh, how we help our kids to prepare for that if um, vocabulary is less central? Um, in terms of how we can help kids prepare for, for taking the test. Interesting question. Yeah. I mean, so gone are the days of, of vocab, you know, boxes of vocab, yeah, flashcards. Right, the like flashcards um, and the big books uh, of words. It makes me so words sad. It makes, I mean, I just, I, I, I was not really an inveterate reader uh, in high school or college. So I would not have, you know, casually thrown out the word inveterate. Um, but, but doing all this test prep and really being on the hook for every kid saying, well, what does this word mean? And I couldn't yeah. him and how, well, it kind of like went, no, no, they want like, what do I write down? Yeah. So when I first started doing test prep in 93, I had these little pocket dictionaries. I probably have them kicking around, yeah. um, with all the etymologies, right? And I just shredded them because I looked up words over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Yep. And so I really enjoy and find real value in having a, a more robust and more nuanced vocabulary because I think it uh, allows one to be more specific, more more accurate, more subtle in yeah. with language and conveying you know specific and subtle ideas. That being said, no, no one cares and no one's going to bring that vocabulary standardized <laughs> test for, for, you know, if you grew up with a family, both of your parents were college professors or English teachers, you're going to yeah. be awash in words and ways that you won't if you have right. a different experience. Um, you know, and, and um, there's a wonderful book called Meaningful Differences. It's um, Hart and Risley. They're two professors out of Kansas University, I believe, who were tasked with looking at um, uh, the Head Start program and, and found that, you know, the Head Start, it didn't close the gap as much as people, I mean, it was incredibly mm. helpful, but it didn't close the gap as much as people would have thought, in part because there, by, by age four or three, whenever kids were engaging, there was already this, this like 30 million word gap, not individual words, but how many total words, kids wow. of professional families, how many words were spoken to develop to babies and their developing brains yeah. than to really under-resourced families. And those different stick, literally stick in their brains. Um, but so, so with, with standardized tests, if we talk really for now just about the reading and writing and not the math, it remains the case that this is a test of reading. And so for kids who have read a lot, who have been read to, who, yeah. because we know that people acquire vocabulary and ling linguistic sophistication as much by hearing, by being spoken to, as they do by reading things themselves. So for parents who are listening to this, like, oh, I, you know, you know I, I can't get my kid to read, read to your kid. Even for kids who are like 10, 11, you know, 12, this is actually kind of important. My partner and scribe, um, Bill Stickshirt, who's a clinical neuropsychologist, so often would see kids who were, were struggling with reading. And the, the, the assignment from on high would be, we'll, we'll have your kid read every night. And, and Bill pointed out, let's not do that. Because if you take the thing that the kid finds hardest to do yeah. and you make it a chore and you do it at the end of the night when he's already kind of tapped out, ah. you know, you're really going to blitz any potential love of reading. Mm. He said, yeah. because when we look at how, you know, words are processed, you know, if, if you hear words, it goes through and ends up in the left frontal lobe, you know, back of the brain and then background and then it ends up there. If you 
um, read it yourself. It goes through the occipital lobe, blah, 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 and ends up in the exact same darn place. I can't get all the language right because I'm not a brain scientist the way he is, but it comes through a different place, but ends up at the same place, comes through a different you know, sense. Yeah. So if we want to help kids read, we want to talk to them as much as we can, talk with them, not at them, right? We want to expose them to sophisticated language and sophisticated yeah, reading, right. um, you know, read to kids. If they're not readers, read to them. Um, and also from my perspective, you, you want to have kids read things that are fun. And I've read a beautiful article and I forget who wrote this, but made the point that for kids, even up through, through high school age, will routinely go back and read things that are too young for them because they're comfort. It's comfort reading, right? It's a snuggly blanket. It's, you know, cinnamon toast when you're, when you're sick in bed. Right. (laughs) And so my, my daughter adores the uh, mysterious Benedict society. Well, my, I have a kid who's, she's super bright. She's very sophisticated, but she loves these because they're great stories and they're great characters. And so they're like these old friends. So we, we, so, so it's, it's a, it's a note to don't poo poo what kids want to read. Cause honest to gosh, whatever they read is great. Okay. We do want to stretch them and have them read yeah. things that are more sophisticated. Cause one of the things the SAT did and it's a new iteration in 2016 was recognized that for to be college, to be ready for college level reading. And that was really their goal. It's not just fiction, fiction, fiction. So there's yeah. a mix of, you know, prose fiction and um, historical documents, right? You know, Lincoln-Douglas mm. debates, uh, there's scientific passages about, you know, whatever scientific passages are about. And these are different <laughs> types of reading, right? And yeah. so the long story short is if you were, if you wanted to help your kids do better on this, it's you want to talk with them about sophisticated things, not just being on top of them about school, but in a perfect world, particularly if your kids are little, to try to create a culture of reading. And then whatever it is that they want to read, support that, you know, get yeah, books from the okay. library. If you can afford it, go on Amazon, find people who bought this book also like th- that yeah. book. And then try to, whenever it's opportunity to gently nudge them into things that are a little bit more, a little more challenging to them at a li- linguistic level. And then what do we do to sort of like move them up the scale a little bit if they're reading the cinnamon toast types of books? So how do we get kids who don't want to take on things that are more challenging to take on things that are more challenging? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it certainly depends on the kid. I mean, one, one thing, it's important to note that a lot of kids who are averse to reading, some of them may have undiagnosed learning disabilities or learning differences. If you're concerned about that, I, you know, reach out to your children's teachers and or a pediatrician. And we just want to, we want to see there because if there's, if there's something that's undiagnosed, then kids are going to naturally, we're back to avoiding, they're going to avoid the things that make mm-hmm. them feel dumb. Right. And that's, you know, it was funny. I have a student I'm working with now who's a lovely kid. And she talked about, she, she never liked, she doesn't like reading that much. She doesn't think of herself as a good reader. Um, I have a, I have a, I have a friend who did her doctoral work um, on academic self-concept and ah. found that kids, and this was from a couple of decades ago, but their academic self-concept was tied to what reading group were they in in first grade? Wow. Okay. Yeah. And because if you have to read out loud, you know, and I'm struggling with my phonics to sound out the word and Andy's over there snickering at me and it just makes me feel, it makes me feel like a dummy. So I don't want to work harder to do it. You know, I don't want to do it at all. So you want to pay attention 
to that. And, and you can even test this. I test with, with kids I work with and, and oftentimes then refer them to, to have an evaluation done where I said, do, do me think, just read those couple sentences out loud. Okay. And if your kids struggle to sound out words, that really means mm. that they're going to struggle with decoding, meaning that they can't figure out words that are unfamiliar to them. And therefore, they're really going to struggle with the acquisition of vocabulary. So I'm not really a, a learning, a reading specialist, but you know, a couple things to look for. With books generally, I mean, it's a, it's a digital world and, and there's, I mean, just so many incredibly compelling things on YouTube and everywhere else. Yeah, I right. get that. I get that kids don't want to do it, but um, I think it helps a lot if we as parents are reading. I think you can do things like, you know, in your summer vacation, let's everyone have a book. Everyone's going to be off their phone and we're just going to, you know, read whatever you want to read for a couple hours. And then yeah. if you can afford it to be as generous as possible with making available to kids books that are books that are compelling to them. Uh, and if, you know, certainly if you go to a good bookstore, say my kid loves this kind of movie, right? Um, what's a good book that's like that? Because a lot of the, <laughs> I always had this idea, the recollection of kind of eighth grade where you're sitting there and, uh, and the teacher's like, well, we've got some really good books to read this year. These are important classics. Um, none of which you're going to like, but this, you know, and, you know, and it's like, you know, part of it is also there's a there's a, it's a stereotype, but kind of a boy girl stereotype of yeah. girls going through puberty at an earlier age, more more early maturation in the prefrontal cortex, taking more oh. interest in relationships and the in, you know inner lives and inner monologues, are going to more take to you know I don't know Jane Austen, Jane Eyre kind of stuff. And I'm like I'm still I'm sure it's arrested development. Like no, right? <laughs> because you know you like what you like. So I think parents sometimes think I need to get my kids to read important books. But mm. there are sophisticated books that are linguistically sophisticated, written about everything you can imagine. So when I have kids who are outdoors folks, right? It's like, well, have you read, you know, Into Thin Air? Have you read Into the Wild? I mean, they're really great yarns that, that Krakauer tells, right? If you yeah. love books, you know, A Good Walk Spoiled and, and all those wonderful books about sports, you know, Jim Collins. I mean, there's just, there's great stuff out there. And so the problem is you can't argue taste, but I think it's great to see what your kids are like and take and take interest in the books that they're reading. I ask about all these characters and don't, don't sort of poo-poo it. But then, you know, you might secretly ask the, the school librarian, what's a book that's like this that's a little bit more sophisticated? We are here with Ned Johnson talking about how to help your teenager conquer the SAT and ACT. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. The older that I've gotten, the more humble I've gotten about that I'm not, I'm not always sure what's in the best interest of kids. And the more important I've, I've come to feel that is to really respect them, including, you know, their boundaries and what they want to talk about and don't want to talk about. I was working with this pair of twins, fraternal twins. Yeah. And one sister was incredibly, incredibly academic, very curious, you know, really interesting learner. Yeah. And her sister was totally this artist, very different brain, lovely yeah, child, yeah, yeah, yeah. but really struggling with anxiety and depression. And she, in many ways, didn't want to take the test because she expected that she was going to really underperform her sister. And she didn't want one more thing reminding her that she wasn't, air quotes, as smart as her sister. So she looked at me and she said, do I have to take this test? And I said, 
Oh my God, no, not at all. Particularly this year, the whole world is test optional. No, 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 no. You've done great grades. And we look, your grades are, are great, you know, and you want to be an artist and you've already got the portfolio. You can roll off to all these places and you don't have to do this at all. Tell your parents you want to take the money from me and, and you go and go buy art supplies. I said, <laughs> I said, absolutely not. I said, but here's what I want. I said, I want you to take the test. And here's why. You're at this score. And I know if we can get to this score, it's, you, you get even more choices. But more importantly, because I was very open about talking about anxiety. We know yeah. again that the dominant manifestation of anxiety is avoidance. Right. And we know that you're really anxious. We know you're working with depression. And what I want for you is to get, you know, as a perfect world to graduate high school with it, with a brain that's more tolerant of this. And yeah. I said, so this SAT and ACT in this case was a perfect example, because here's why, here's why. When you have the experience of dealing with something that's a little intense and you handle it, you cope with it, it lowers the stress, the perceived stress of that thing. And the more we have these experience of coping with things, if I, I did all right, I could handle that, right? It, it can generalize and it, because you're wiring the prefrontal cortex to regulate the stress response. And so I talked about this and because what otherwise what happens is if you're anxious and you avoid things make you anxious and you avoid these and you avoid yeah. this, the world in which you feel safe to operate gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I don't want you to have this little space that you can operate in. You're an artist. I want you to be big and be messy and be everywhere and do great stuff. Yeah, so let's use a stupid right. test to do this. So we did this and she needed for the schools that she was looking at, she needed like a 27 maybe 26 on the ACT and she started like at a 24. Okay. Well, we take the first practice test and she gets a 29 and I'm like, yes. And she looks at me and she's pissed. And very quickly I pivoted right? and she realized, no, she wants a 30 purely for ego to put her stake in this ground and say, F you stupid test makers. And I'm like, well, all right, hot digging, right? <laughs> now we're, we're, you know, you're playing with the, with the house's money, right? And it's no, it's uh, no longer I have right. to, because you've already way past what you need you're for college. This is what I want, damn it, right? And mm. she did, she went off, she got, I forget if it's a 30 or 31, I can't remember, right? But part of it is, I mean, she is a, she does have a really good mind. She is a really good student, but so much of her performance was undone by undone by the stress that she felt and how her parents compared them in ways that were, you know, probably not what I would have done. Um, yeah. So again, for, for parents, it's perfectly fine to want this, to want the sun and the moon and the Ivy League, whatever for your kid, so long as that's something that they also want. But we just, we want to balance that. We want to leaven that by, it's not an expectation. It's, I, you know, I, I, I bet you can do this, not that, that you, you have to do this. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.